remember it was years ago. I will, let me start off just before that. Let me ask you, how many of you all uh, have had older brothers growing up? No? Yeah. How many of you all are older brothers? Yeah, shame on y'all. I know, I know. Because I'm, I'm an older brother. This morning what we want to talk about is when we're looking at a series on the parables of Jesus and we're going to start with the most famous parable that Jesus ever came up with, at least according to Charles Dickens and Ralph Waldo Emerson, this parable happens to be the best short story ever told, according to the likes of Dickens and Emerson. Um, When Jesus was on earth, I think we would all agree that there's one word that really surmises his life, and that is amazing. Uh, His birth was amazing, right? born of a virgin, it's kind of an amazing thing, and angelic proclamation, and uh, shepherds and wise men there, it was an amazing thing. You, you find uh, when he started his ministry, healing, it was kind of amazing. If you met the medical world, you, maybe you understand the, what blindness really is, well, Jesus would go to people who are blind, been blind since birth, and heal them, and complete regeneration. Uh, Jesus went to people who were dead, not almost dead, not in a coma, but in some cases dead for days. In in one case, the guy was mummified, and Jesus rose them from the dead. That's kind of an amazing thing. The fact that Jesus uh, died for us, that he rose again, that after he rose, he walked through uh, doors that were locked while they were locked. Amazing. Everything about Jesus was amazing. How could it not be? Even his teaching. His teaching was not wasted words. It was not boring stuff. It's not filler just to get to the real good part of the story. It was very important because if you think about this, you've got God coming to earth telling us what life is really about, how we're supposed to think about God, how we're supposed to think about ourselves, how we're supposed to deal with life. It's amazing. And he taught with his sermons, and he taught with debate, and he taught uh, with uh, uh, question-answer times. But the way that he seemed to appreciate the most it was his teaching through parables. Parables are fictitious stories that he was making up that come across with one main point. And here's the deal for us. If you can get that one main point, and you can apply it to your life, the transformation will be amazing. And so the story we're looking at this morning, I was here five years ago now when I started. It was shortly after that that we looked at this text, but we're going back to it this morning because uh, not only is it his most famous text, but the transformation that if you can get the message of this parable and apply it is amazing. So if you got your Bibles, turn with me to Luke uh, chapter 15. I mentioned earlier about the big brother thing. Uh, I'm a big brother, so I know how this goes. I've got three kid brothers, and if you were to get them together, and they were to tell you about their experiences with me, it'd be uh, tales of depravity untold. I mean, it was uh, ignorance and just straight-up meanness. Once my middle kid brother, Timmy, uh, he was probably nine, I was 16, my mom and I were sitting in our living room. I remember this. It was a beautiful summer day. The front door was open. We just had the screen door there. And, and we're sitting there talking. And all of a sudden, Timmy comes running through. And he's streaking. And he's singing. And they call him the streak. And he's shooting through there. Whoa, whoa, did that happen? And so we start laughing. And all of a sudden, we hear his uh, bedroom door open again. And he comes around for, for, for round two. 
and he comes running through. And this time he's incorporated a little dance. And so he stops in front of us and he does his dance and he shows us his glory. And then he goes and runs back to his bedroom. Wow. We're, my mom and I are howling because we just think this is hilarious. Well, we egged him on, I suppose, again. So his door opens and he comes through again and he, he stops in front of us and he starts doing his dance. And then what happened at that moment, and I'm not sure what came over me, but what happened at that moment would go down in Harris lore is just an incredible... So I jump up and I put my arms around Timmy. And we're all kind of laughing. And then I start edging my way towards the front door. And he starts going, what's going on, Mark? What's going on? Well, I pop the front door open with my elbow and I chuck him out. And I think I chucked him too hard because he went down the stairs and he hit these planters that my mom had and dirt and flowers and legs and, and he jumps up and he looks around to make sure no one's looking and he bolts back up. And at that point, I realized the error of my ways. I realized I should have locked the door. <laughs> Wouldn't that have been great? Yeah, well, and so anyway, so he comes, he comes in and my mom, this tells you about my family dynamics. My mom is sitting on the, the chair, just, she's laughing so hard she can't even make any noise. You ever, you ever see people laughing that loud? She's just, she's just shaking, tears are rolling down her face and she's laughing so hard. Fast forward about 12, 15 years later. We're at a family reunion. Timmy has just gotten out of the Marines. He won, I'm, I'm serious about this, he won Mr. Southern USA Bodybuilding Company. He just got done. He was just, he was just massive. Little did I know what he was working toward. <laughs> so at this family reunion, he comes up to me and he puts his arms around me, locks. And you know, there's no getting out of this. And he whispers in my ear, Mark, remember that time you threw me out of the house naked? <laughs> so he starts moving towards... Now, luckily, he was more sanctified than I was, and so I, I got out of that one relatively scot-free. But big brothers can be a key problem, can't they? Uh, Bible's got big brother issues. Jacob and Esau, we know about this. Joseph and his big brothers. You know, you got Samuel and his adopted big brothers, Hophni and Phinehas. That didn't go very well. Uh, but the most famous big brother story is before you in Luke 15. If we're going to understand this parable, though, as any parable, we need to understand the context. We need to understand who Jesus is talking to and why he's saying what he's saying. If you can understand that, the interpretation is, is right, right there. But chapter 15, verse 1, it says, Now the tax, now the story really doesn't start to verse 11, but we're going to start in verse 1 to get the idea here. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, you. See who's here, right? You got the sinners, tax collectors, sinners. You got the Pharisees, teachers of the law, and you and you got Jesus. And the the topic that's on the table, when Jesus was here, the Pharisees were hammering him on three things always, always. One is Sabbath. He would break the Sabbath. They had their rules, and you don't heal anyone on the Sabbath, and you'd think that a healing would be pretty substantial. But he healed on the Sabbath, almost kind of in their face kind of thing. So they were upset with him about that. Number two, they were upset with Jesus because he claimed more for himself than they thought was warranted. Claimed to be God, deity. That Pharisees had an issue with this one. And then third thing that they came on him about was the fact that he hung out with sinners. Uh, Pharisees could not understand this. See, Pharisees understood who was in and they understood who was out. They had the lines of demarcation drawn pretty clear. And on the inside, uh, people on the inside are them. 
the course, they, they were doing it right. People on the inside were the uh, Jewish people who understood the Old Testament law, which wasn't just 10 commandments, it was 614 commandments. And what the Pharisees had done is they took every scenario in life you can imagine, and they went through these 614 laws and they applied them to your life. And so if you lived your life by all these laws, then you were in the middle. You were righteous. You were in. Now the people on the outside... Uh, it's easy enough. Of course, the Gentiles weren't in. They worshipped something else. They, don't, they weren't in. But Jewish people who just had disdain for the law, tax collectors, kind of blew off the nation of Israel. They blew off God. They, they, they had sided with the enemy. Your, your prostitutes and your adulterers and your thieves and people for whatever reason and in any way decided, forget this following the law thing. I'm done. According to the Pharisees, they were out. And they just couldn't understand Jesus liked to hang out with the people on the outside. He hung out with Matthew, who was a tax collector, and Zacchaeus, and the woman caught in adultery, and Mary Magdalene, he cast seven demons out of her. All these very unclean people on the outside. Jesus is hanging out with them, and the Pharisees can't understand if he's a righteous man, he should be hanging out with righteous people. That's the way it should work. But, so that's what's on the table. It's important for us to understand because this parable is going to answer or deal with that, that issue. So Jesus says, let me, let me tell you a story. Actually, he's going to tell them three stories. First story, he tells them is the story of the lost sheep. He says there was a shepherd, he had 100 sheep. And one day he was doing a head count and he had 99 of them there. And one of them disappeared and probably wandered away. And so he didn't say, well, at least I still have 99. He went after the one. He left and he went after the one that was lost. And when he found it, he said this. And when he finds it, he joyfully, notice the joyfully thing, puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice, there's that joy thing again, with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Then he says, let me tell you another story. And he says, there was a, a, a woman who, who lost a coin. She had 10 coins, and most probably these were her dowry, pretty important. You're not going to get married without them. And so she's counting her money one day, and she only counts to nine. One of them's missing, and she knows she didn't take it outside. It's in the house somewhere, so she does this massive spring cleaning thing, and she finds it. And when she finds it, it says, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. In the same way I tell you there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God, over one sinner who repents. Jesus says, let me tell you another story. It's this parable of the lost son. He said, there was a man who had two sons. Now you see the progression. He's, what he's doing is he's luring in the Pharisees. Got a hundred sheep. You lose one of them. Oh, it's not a big deal. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, yeah, it's, not, it's not a huge deal. Then he goes down to a woman with ten coins. You watch your money and all. That's kind of a big issue. But then he goes down. There's a, a dad who's got two boys. He's, the intensity keeps getting ratcheted up here a little bit. So he says, there's, there's a father. He had, he had two sons. And the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. Now, culturally, what should have happened is, is the young kid would get one-third. 
the older brother gets two-thirds, the younger gets one-third. I think today we should still do it that way. Um, but be that either way, that's how they did it here. The younger son got one-third, and, but you didn't get it until after the dad died. That was, and so for this young kid to come and make this request was culturally unheard of. This was, this was he broke all kinds of, of etiquette with this one. And the Pharisees got to be going, whoa, whoa, because what the kid is saying is this. He's saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. I've got plans for my life, and you need to know they don't incorporate you. Your plans for my life, your values, your principles, your, fine if that's yours, that's not mine. I want, I want out. Give me my inheritance. And everybody would think, well, what should happen at this point is, is the, the father, according to culture, should take this boy outside publicly, slap him in the face, denounce him because of his sin, and excommunicate him from the family. And you think, if you think that's too hard, Deuteronomy 21 says this could be a capital offense. We do a lot of stuff here in the U.S. that you would never get away with at this point in history. You don't shame your parents. It was a, a picture of shaming God, so you just didn't do it. And so the story ended here. The Pharisees would say, well, I know what's going to happen to this kid. But it doesn't, it doesn't end here, does it? This kid liquidates the assets, the dad acquiesces, so the kid liquidates his assets, and you need to know that part of the inheritance would be, you know, sheep and gold and all that stuff. But also part of the inheritance would be the land. And hopefully one day after the dad died, the kid would raise his own family on the land and blah, blah, blah. Uh, but you don't liquidate, you don't get rid of the land. Because the land was owned by your father, your grandfather, your great-grandfather, all the way back to, to Joshua. The, the land was a gift from God to your tribe. And it was, it was, a, it was like an a engagement ring, I think, between, between you and God. It was, it, was, it was a sign that God's favor was on you and that you belonged to him. That was, the land was huge for them. And so to sell it, you're saying, I'm not interested in God either, just so you know. And then it says he went to a far land, which means he went outside the borders of Israel. He left the Holy Land. He left the Covenant Land. He left the umbrella of God's protection. He was gone. He has nothing to do with it. And then he wasted the money. And again, at, at this point, the Pharisees, if the story ended here, they would be ticked off at this kid, of course. How dare a Jewish person, Jewish blood in him. They have the promises of, of, of God to Moses. They, they, and they walk away from it. And they shame their father this way. If the story ended here, the Pharisees would be ticked off at the father for, for not doing what he was supposed to do and teaching that son a lesson. How dare he acquiesce to that kid as well. But the story doesn't, doesn't end there, does it? It says in verse 14, after he had spent everything and there was, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went out and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Now, Jesus, master storyteller, is painting this thing so it, it, it can't possibly get any worse. You got this Jew, Jewish boy who, who left everything and squandered his money, and then he has no money, and he's in a distant land, and then famine hits. Now, in our annals that we have, when a famine hit, it usually spelt catastrophe, disaster for the land that was sponsoring the famine that year. It was a, uh, 
Most people didn't have lots of reserves. They didn't have lots of insurance. They didn't have lots of bank accounts. They were living day to day. And so when a famine hit, it was a bad situation. And according to the annals that we have, often cannibalism crept in. And so you can imagine if you're a foreigner and you have no family around and this is going on, you are a target. But but the kid does find a job. But Jesus paints this perfectly for a Jewish boy to find a job being a swineherd, right? And this kid is in the pig pen, literally, with these hogs. And not only that, but the pigs are better off than he is. He longs to fill his stomach with the pods that they're eating. The pigs are in better shape than they're in. And then he just kind of rubs it in a little bit further, and no one gave him anything. You know, just, just, just throw a little bit more of insult on this. And if the story ended here, the Pharisees would be going, well, you know what? A little bit of justice is done after all. Okay, there is a God in heaven. Good job. This, this, this guy gets what he deserves. He's got nothing. He's in a pig pen. Horrific. There. They, they, would, they would say, okay, that was a good story, Jesus. He got what he deserved. Story's done. And Jesus saying, no, 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 no. Story's not, story's not done. This is in verse 17. When he came to his senses... He said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against... He rehearses this big thing. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. Now, a handful of, of different things with this. If you think about it, Jesus has put this guy in the story in the absolute most unclean place any Pharisee can imagine, in a pig pen, right? But it's in that pig pen that this kid comes to his senses. He hits bottom and he realizes how his sin, his choosing against God, what it has done. And he... he he repents, and everything we can see says his repentance is pure, it's clean. So, so this most filthy place ends up becoming holy ground. And, and the, the Pharisees, if Jesus would have told this story to them, they would, have been, they would have been mind blown. They did not have categories for this. See, the way you became righteous was by staying in that box and doing righteous things. And as soon as you repudiated that and you left, there's really no way you can come back. Because you start doing all these unrighteous things and you come back and it, you, you've lost time and you've done wrong things. They had no, no, no category for this. So they'd be going, what do you do with this one? But if he does come back, see, they knew what was supposed to happen. One of two things. Either A, he would, if, he, if the father was gracious, he would uh, never see the son. He would sequester the son off to a little shack on the far side of their ranch and the kid would die there in isolation he and the father would never communicate David did this with Absalom remember this initially Absalom came back and David would not see him would not have him see his face would not communicate him sequestered him away initially that was the plan and the Pharisees know he'll either do that or the father will take the son out have him slapped in the face denounce his sin have him beaten mercilessly and if he lives he can be the father's lowest slave. But the father's going to do one of those two things. And so if this story ended right here, the Pharisees would be saying, well, good, we know what's going to happen. We, we understand how this is going to work. But then Jesus says, the story doesn't end yet. Uh, Jesus tells probably the most controversial verse of this passage. Again, the, the Pharisees would have been in awe and anger. 
But it says, while he was still a long way off, this pig pen kid who's coming to see his dad, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Now, how did he see him when he's still a far way off? Now, when he knocks on your door, of course, you're going to see him. He comes through the gate of your front yard, and you're, you're out there, you'll see him. But when he's still far off, how will you see him? It must be that the father would climb the tower and perhaps look down the road and stare down that road. Perhaps this is the day my son is coming back. And when he sees him, the father runs. You know, it's, it's fascinating. This is the only text in Scripture where God the Father is pictured as running. It almost seems that God the Father is impatient. It's a, a, a crazy thing. And so the father runs. And then when the father gets to the boy who's smelling like he's been in a pig pen and he's just filthy, does the father go, all right, let's get this kid a shower. No, he embraces this kid with all the pig dung on him and everything else. He embraces him and holds him close and he's kissing this kid all over the cheeks. He's getting uncleanness. I mean, epitome of uncleanness. This kid is wearing it. And the father doesn't seem to care. And the Pharisees, if the story ended here, Pharisees would be going, Jesus, Louise, this is crazy. This is impossible. This can't happen. What is going on? It can't get any worse than that. He does it publicly in front of other people. Ah, it can't get worse. And Jesus says, oh yeah, it gets worse. Just, just listen what, what happens next. And the son said to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. He starts going through his, his rehearsed speech. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And then notice he doesn't keep going. That's real important. He doesn't keep going because the father cuts him off. But the father said to his servants, quick, quick, bring the best robe and put it on and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. It's almost as if the father is impatient. Would you, can you imagine God, the, the Father, being impatient? You, you know, it, it's, it's fascinating here. Mid-Eastern culture would forbid a, a man to, to run. For a man to run was a shame. Children ran, servants ran, a man did not run. And the word is to sprint. And so for this man to sprint, he's lifting up his robes, showing his bare legs. Not a big thing for us. But for them in this culture, that would have been horrific. It didn't happen. You know, in the, the Arabic New Testament, it wasn't until, written obviously to Mideastern people, it wasn't until 1860 that they would actually translate this word run because culturally it was so offensive, the dad didn't do it. But this guy is doing it. And then when, when he gets to this kid, the kid starts going off as this litany of, of his, his repentance speech, and the dad stops it. Now, this, this is... This is amazing. It's amazing stuff because oh, when we repent, our words are important, but they're not necessary. Uh, maybe you have talked, remember you had little kids? And you'd say, you know, Johnny, say you're sorry to Susie. And you'd, oh, I'm sorry, Susie. And, you know, he said the words, right? But his heart was not repentant. We know that. We know that. His heart was nowhere near repentance. We also, maybe you've experienced this, somebody has come to you and they are so sorry for what they've done, they can't even talk. They're standing there trying to talk and the tears are streaming down their face. And you know, words are irrelevant. You realize their heart. When you repent, this is, 
when you repented, you just need to know this. When you repented, it wasn't an issue necessarily of the words you said. Sometimes we get into this thing, I hope I said the right thing. Did I say it right? Did I leave something out? Did it take? There's no magic words. There's no incantation. If you say it this way, it'll work. Repentance is not the words. Repentance is your heart. And the Father knows your heart. And so he comes to, to this, this boy. And he says, let's get this kid a robe on. And all the people around are seeing my son and he's, he's naked. They need to know that I'm proud of him, that he's my boy, that he's part of the family. And so they put this robe on this kid. And then he says, put sandals on his feet. And, and slaves didn't wear sandals. But the sons, very expensive, the sons wore the sandals. Signs of sonship, get them on. And, and this, this boy put the ring on his finger. Now the ring probably had the crest, family crest on it. And this is huge because when you would make deals as a family, when you would write letters, when you would sign contracts, you pour the wax and you kind of roll the crest into it. What the father was giving the boy was full sonship. Now, now think with me for a second. How much penance did this kid have to do here? How much restitution? I mean, he owed a lot. How much restitution had to happen? How much purgatory did he have to endure? Uh, How much self-righteousness did he have to attain before he was in? Zero. The reality is, when you truly repent and you come to him in repentance, you you know what? Before you get off your knees, and I don't know if it's you on your knees by your bed, you came up here, you pulled the car over one day, and you, you, you accepted Christ. When you truly repent, before you're done with the prayer, before you're done with the words, if your heart, you've truly repented, he has clothed, the Father has been waiting for you. He's been looking for you. And he's run to you, and he has clothed you with the robes of Jesus. He's given you full rights as a son. You're not going to become more of a son when you get better, when you get your act together, when things get cleaned up, when you don't smell as bad. Full rights as a son. He gives immediately. Not because of any righteous stuff that we have done. And, and if, then, then what the father does is he kind of puts icing on this pharisaical, ludicrous cake. And he says, he says, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Uh, celebrations, this Ju- Judaistic culture this time were community events. You did not celebrate by yourself, just our family. It didn't happen. It was a community event. Remember when John the Baptist in Luke 1 was being circumcised? Kind of a personal thing. It's being circ- there was a, the whole town was there. It's a community event. You celebrated in a community. Also, you never celebrated unless there was a spiritually significant issue that happened. You didn't celebrate for, quote-unquote, secular things, only if it was a spiritually significant thing. What the Father's saying here, real important, is... Something happened here that is so spiritually significant that we have to celebrate. We cannot not celebrate. And if you're part of the family, you celebrate. It's just, it's just what happens. And if the Pharisees were, were listening at this point, the, the, the story ended here, they, their chins would be on the ground. They'd be going, this is, incre- this is the most stupid culturally insensitive, spiritually X-rated, semi-blasphemous story that was ever told and they would be filled with judgment for Jesus and for all this stupid story that he's told. But Jesus is saying, no, no, hang on, story's not done yet. 
Remember I told you there were two sons? Well, let's, let's look at the second son. Verse 25, it says, Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, What's going on? Your brother has come, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And you can just see the wheels rolling in the older brother's head. He's going, huh. huh. The servant says, yeah, they put the robe on him. The robe? Really? Really? And they put sandals on him. Sonship? I probably a pair of my sandals. But okay, he's getting a little bit hot here. Gave him the ring. The ring! You mean father gave him the ring? What, what, why did he do that? And he's just bent out of shape. Then Jesus gives some characteristics of big brothers. The first characteristic of big brother is that big brother is more lost than kid brother. Verse 28, it says, The older brother became angry, and he refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. Now, does that sound to you like big brother and father have a nice relationship? It's, it's, this is a major twist in the story because inside where the father is, where the party's going on, the people who are inside are people that Big Brother thought, didn't think should be inside. And, and meanwhile, he who's supposed to be inside is on the outside. He's separated from the father. The, the Pharisees had uh, turned lostness into nothing more than, than not keeping the rules. And Jesus is reminding them, no, no, it's beyond that. Lostness is being estranged from the Father. You can keep all the rules and still be estranged from the Father. We do this. If you grew up in the church, big brother syndrome, it's easy to have. You ask, how's your walk with the Lord? What do we say? My quiet time's going great. Well, yeah, but can you have quiet time and not be with the Lord? Yeah, I've done this many, many times. We say, well, how are you doing spiritually? Well, I'm praying. Well, that's wonderful. Can you pray and not... Be in his presence? Pharisees, name a world religion. It's, uh, absolutely. I've, I've been there. Can you do all the good things? How are, you, how are you doing with the Lord? Well, I'm serving here. I'm going to church here. I'm doing this. Well, I'm cleaning up my act. Okay, those, are one, those are wonderful things. But can you do that stuff and not be close to the Father? Yes. And so Jesus is saying here, you guys need to know this, Pharisees, that there are two ways you can be lost. Yes, you can be on the outside, and, and, but on the inside you can be lost as well. Now, kid brothers are easy to recognize, right? Kid brothers are easy to recognize. Kid brothers are like in jail, or they're in rehab, or they're in, in Colorado trying to find themselves, or they're in a biker gang in Southern California, they're in maths. Kid brothers are far from God, and they know it. They know it. It's easy enough to recognize kid brothers. But big brothers, where do you suppose big brothers hang out? church they're doing all the right stuff externally they look like the father but internally and it's just easy for us if you grew up in the church to turn church stuff to, to say if I just do the church stuff I'm walking with the father you may, you, may, you may not be you may not have the father's heart here so that's why we say well let me Luke, Luke 18 let me read this there's another parable that Jesus would tell at one time. And just, just listen to this. This is fascinating. Luke 18, verse 9. It says, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. 
Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. We don't want to see a show of hands. Answer yourself. How many of us uh, give a tithe and fast twice a week? This guy's a pretty good guy, right? But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Matthew 21, verse 32. Listen, he's talking to the Pharisees, right? It's important. He's talking to the Pharisees. And he says to him, For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. Pharisees would be going, Repent! Repent of what? I'm not doing anything bad. I'm in the box. I'm doing everything right. Repent of what? And what Jesus is saying is you don't just repent of your your actions You repent of your actions that you're trusting in. Your actions that you think are going to earn you salvation, earn you to God. You've got to repent of your righteousness, just like kid brother needed to repent of his unrighteousness. Because that's a block between you and, and, and the Father. Sometimes when we think that when Jesus was here, he and the Pharisees kind of had this hate-hate relationship going on. You know, the Pharisees hated him and kept trying to trip him up, and he kept calling them whitewashed walls. And they just hated each other. But if you look at the story, Jesus did not hate the Pharisees. He's telling them this story. What does the father do to the big brother? He goes out to him. He, just like he ran out to the young brother, he runs out to the big brother, and he pleads with him. He's not beating him up for his stupid attitude and for his ungratefulness. He pleads with him to come in. But even though the father loves big brother, big brother is still lost unless he repents. Big brothers are more, that's why we say big brothers are more lost than kid brothers because they don't know it. Big brothers also view obedience as drudgery. Verse twenty. Nine, but he answered his father. Don't you think I love this answer? Look, all these years I've been slaving for you, and you never and have never disobeyed your orders. Quite quite pejorative, actually. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Obedience for Big Brother is drudgery. It's a pain. And it's a badge. Look what I have sacrificed. All your stupid rules. You're dumb. Diddly, asinine, dig holes and fill them in again type rules. I did them all. I was faithful to you. Don't you think? kind of angry about their obedience. Now, obedience sometimes is hard. It is. But, but it's not a drudgery. And if, in fact, your mindset in following after Christ and in serving him is just, is just a pain in the tail, then probably you've got a little more Big Brother stuff in you than you would anticipate. Another characteristic of Big Brothers is they view their obedience as entitlement. You did all this stuff, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Now, why do you think Kid Brother left home? Kid Brothers leave home, I'm guessing maybe various reasons, but because 
they want to have fun, don't they? They want to party. They want to be with their friends. And, and they think that all these rules and regulations and principles, and they're going to keep me from enjoying life. And so kid brother is gone. But, but look at what big brother wanted. He wanted the same thing that kid brother wanted. I want a goat to party with my friends. They wanted the same thing. They were just going about it different ways. Kid brother thought the way to get this is to get out from underneath dad's rules. Big brother realized that dad had the keys to the storehouse. And so you got to kind of suck up to him and act like you're loyal to him and, and kind of pretend and go along with his stupid rules so that he will give you what you want. How many of us have ever said, for crying out loud, God, I'm trying here, okay? I'm doing hard. I'm working hard. Look at the stuff I've done. Look at what I've given away. Look where I've gone. Look what I've been. Look what I'm, I'm trying here. And you don't come through for me. That's a big brother thing. That's a, I view obedience as a sense of entitlement, trying to get God indebted to us. We're going to do the right stuff, see? So God is indebted. He kind of owes us, and he has to come through. And when he doesn't, there's anger towards God. Big brother is also filled with disdain towards kid brother. He says in verse 30, but when this son of yours, doesn't say my brother, this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes. Now, I don't know why he said that, because it never says that he squandered property. He says while living, but it never says he squandered it with prostitutes. What is big brother thinking? Is this perhaps the way he would have done it? If big brothers, when they think of kid brothers, there's a disdain because they think somehow that kid's going to get away with it. He's going to get away with stuff that maybe I would want to do, but I was too afraid. He's going to get away with it. And he can't handle that. He's going to get more than what I was supposed to get. And I can't handle that. Big brothers. And so Jesus ends this parable in quite a peculiar way. Verse 31, 32, he says, My son, the father said, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And if the story ended there, you might say, well, I wonder whatever happened to big brother. Well, Jesus ends the story intentionally there because, I think, he's standing face to face with big brother, the scribes and Pharisees. He's saying, you tell me. Big brother, how's the story going to end? Repent and come into how's it going? You write the ending, and, and we could envision a good ending to this, couldn't we? Uh, suddenly, Big Brother is is cut to the heart. He falls on his knees. He he realizes his sin, and he says, "Father, I am not worthy to be called your son. I've, I've sinned against heaven and in you. And please forgive me." And the father would lift him up and said, "Bring a new robe and come on in and celebrate because these two sons of mine who were lost are found." That's how it should have ended, right? But but MacArthur, John MacArthur, in his book A Tale of Two Sons, says about a month later. The Pharisees would write the ending, Luke 22 and 23. And the ending would say something like this. Suddenly, big brother flew into a rage. And he looked around and he grabbed the biggest stick he could find. And he hit the, the father with it, knocking him to the ground. And then he hit him again and again and again. While the music played. And then after wiping the blood off his hands, he took the death-stained stick and went looking for kid brother. That's, that's how it would really end. And we might listen to this and say, 
this is quite a story. I guess I can see where Dickens and Emerson are coming from. But it doesn't end there. Because Jesus drops this parable into your lap and my lap. Every one of his teachings, not just for information. Here's something to think about. Every one of his teachings calls for action. And same with this. And so let me... Maybe your kid brother, while you're here in church, I don't know, but maybe you're, just, you're trying to come back or thinking about it, your, your kid brother, or maybe you're kind of kid, your secret kid brother. You know what's going on in your life, no one else knows. And I've seen this a lot, maybe you have too. They don't necessarily, kid brothers don't necessarily want to come back to church because they're afraid of big brother. They know big brother's going to roll his eyes. Big brother's going to be judgment on him. Big brother's going to gossip about him. And they're just not interested in that kind of hypocrisy. Well, if you're a kid brother thinking those kind of things, a couple of things. First of all, some of that's just projection, just not true. Because I know a lot of people in here, and there's a lot of kid brothers in here who've repented and come back, and their grace is going to be huge, much more than you would think. There may be... Wherever you go in Christendom, there might be a big brother who will roll the eyes at you, though, who will gossip about you, all that kind of stuff. But what you need to always keep in mind is this house does not belong to big brother. He thinks it does, but it belongs to the father who waited for you. And as soon as you repented, as soon as you started coming back, he ran to you. Before you can make any restitution, he ran to you and clothed you with with sonship. This is his place, and he has invited you you in. But you have to repent. You're still out living on the wild side, the pig pen, whatever else, and you're not interested in coming back, then that's, that's a different issue. But if you're repenting, he knows your heart. But I think you agree with me. This story is really not about kid brother. Primarily, it's about big brother. And it's easy to fall in that camp. And perhaps, as we talked, you'd say, you know what, there are some characteristics of Big Brother that I'm kind of wearing. What Jesus would say to you is what he said to the uh, Pharisees that he loved very much. You need to repent. You need to repent. So I want to give you a, a moment. Would you close your eyes with me? Bow your heads. If perhaps you are here as a, a kid brother... You do need to repent before the Father will come, but he'll come full force. According to Scripture, this is why Jesus died. All your sins would be removed as far as the east is from the west. All things would be new. He'd clothe you with the the righteousness of Christ. And so where you are, just between you and the Father, who knows you well, you can surrender your life, repent to him. Perhaps your big brother here this morning... And you would say in repentance, Lord, I'm sorry. I didn't see. I didn't think. I didn't realize. Would you make me new? And he will. He will.